Welcome to the Nova Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Nova Podcast. I'm Anne Francis Bayless, the cellist of the Fry Street Quartet. We serve as co-music directors for the Nova Chamber Music Series in Salt Lake City, and we are also the quartet in residence at the King College of the Arts at Utah State University. Recently, the Fry Street Quartet and physicist Dr. Robert Davies premiered the film version of Rising Tide, The Crossroads Project, which is a multidisciplinary performance project addressing issues of global sustainability. This is episode five of the Nova Podcast's Crossroads series, and the subject today is people. To talk more about this project, I'd like to introduce my co-host and colleague, Dr. Rob Davies. Thank you, Anne, and hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us once again. As Anne said, this is the fifth in our series. I'm Rob Davies, co-creator of the Crossroads Project, along with my friends, the Fry Street Quartet, as you just heard. And I want to once again thank the Nova Chamber Music Series uh, and Utah State University and the Kane College of the Arts for supporting this work. And there'll be a whole bunch of other folks uh, we'll thank as well who we'll tag at the end of the show. So just by means of recapping, uh, this performance that uh, we have filmed and that Nova has premiered, Rising Tide, looks at the rules of nature and the rule of people and mismatch that is driving an enormous change in our planet and creating an enormous risk for us, for people. And so far in these podcasts, we've been looking at the rules of nature. Uh, today, we're looking at the rules of modern civilization, uh, the paradigms, these systems that we depend on food and energy and economy uh, have been founded upon, and how we might change that. And if you haven't yet seen the film, uh, you can view it for free. We will link to it in the comments below. But uh, just to start off today's conversation, I want to start with just a few film clips to give us a taste of, of what this section of people, which we call societists, is about. So this first clip, uh, we'll go ahead and run, talks about the notion that everything is connected. Arising from this earth system is another system. We'll call it system us. Living tissue made sentience sentience made civilized. Through ages of stone, iron, and copper emerge human systems within ecosystems, human bubbles in the biosphere. And then, in the age of carbon, bubbles begin to merge, everything connecting to everything, food to energy, energy to economy, economy to governance, one nation to another, each nation to all the others, altogether global, altogether complex. A hedge fund flaps its financial wings in Hong Kong, and an economic hurricane swirls in London. So we start with the notion that uh, in human civilization now, everything is connected, all of these systems. And then we move to a feature of our human uh, modern civilizational global civilization that is giving us real problems. And that is the notion of exponential growth. Fold a piece of paper in half. You double its thickness. Fold it again. It doubles again. And after nine folds, you will have a piece of paper about one inch thick. But with just four more folds, you could have a piece of paper one foot thick. And with just 12 folds more, if you can manage, you will have a piece of paper one mile thick. What? You don't believe me. <laughs> it's right there in the math. Exponential growth in action. Everything is small until it's huge. And everything is fine until it's not. Well, in nature, of course, such growth never lasts because it cannot. The physics of a material world supersedes the mathematics of infinite growth. In nature, a system grows to maturity and levels, or a system grows through overshoot of its resource to collapse. And finally, uh, in this section, we look at the damage 
that uh, our systems of food, energy, economy, and this hyper-consumptive growth uh, are causing, uh, something we call sacrifice zones. Because arising from hyper-consumption is hyper-destruction. Sacrifice zones of land and life, real people, real places, everywhere on our island planet. And like everything in the anthroposphere, these sacrifice zones are growing. Cheap food, cheap energy, cheap stuff, it turns out, isn't so cheap. So, as you can see, uh, we try to cover quite a bit of ground in a pretty short amount of time. And the idea of these podcasts, of course, has been to invite uh, additional voices to talk about this and, and further the exploration and further the discussion, expand it a bit. And so we've got, uh, as we have with these podcasts, two additional voices with us today, both scientific and artistic. And, um, and perhaps you will introduce our first guest. Yes, I'd be happy to. It's really my pleasure to introduce photographer Garth Lenz who has been one of our collaborators on Rising Tide since its premiere in 2012. His fine art and editorial work has been exhibited all over the world, received international awards, appeared in countless publications from the New York Times to National Geographic. And the contrast between the industrial and natural landscapes um, is really a central theme in his work. And he often photographs from the air as a means to communicate the unprecedented scale of industrialism's environmental impact. You can see that in a lot of the photographs that are featured in the film. His TED Talk, The True Cost of Oil, is an absolute must watch um, for any of you who haven't seen it already. And Garth, we're so thrilled that you could join us today. Thank you for being here. No, thank you, Anne. It's, it's wonderful to be, uh, be back with my extended Crossroads family. <laughs> Likewise. Well, thanks for coming, Garth. And uh, to join Garth, we also have a systems scientist, uh, Elizabeth, Dr. Elizabeth Sowen, uh, is with us, joining us from her home in Vermont, I believe. Is that right, uh, Beth? That's right. And um, uh, uh, Beth is as I just said, a system scientist, and it's hard for me to judge these things now from uh, from a perspective of, of not knowing much about these things. But in my world, I consider her kind of a superstar, uh, having studied with, uh, with Donella Meadows uh, and who pioneered a lot of this work in understanding the interaction between human systems and natural systems and trying to model it with limits to growth work from the early 1970s, perhaps, uh, Beth, you'll tell us a little bit more about that experience as well. Beth is also the co-director and co-founder of Climate Interactive, uh, which is just an amazing tool for uh, policymakers in particular, I think, who are trying to figure out how to move their communities uh, at all scales to a more sustainable and vibrant state. So uh, welcome, Beth. Thank you so much for joining us and taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation a lot. So uh, we're going to start the conversation with you, Beth, too. And I'm wondering if let's first let's maybe just tell us a little bit more uh, about what it is you do and how you came to be doing it. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I'm the co-director of an organization called Climate Interactive, as Rob said. Um, and so the main thing that we do is build computer simulations of issues like climate change and everything that it touches. So health and food and water and all of these themes um, that you see in the Crossroads film, actually. Um, and the method that we use for that is something called system dynamics. And that really is the touchstone to, Rob, what you just mentioned, um, the work of Danella Meadows and the other authors of the book, The Limits to Growth. So this was in 1972, basically grappling with the exact same questions that the film and the performance look at. Um, we have a growing, human ecological footprint on a finite planet, how do those two things resolve themselves? What's a path forward through it? That's the, that was the question of the limits to growth. Um, one of the authors of the limits to growth was Danella Meadows. So she was a, a mentor um, of mine and my colleagues at Climate Interactive. In fact, we worked at the institute she founded, it was called the Sustainability Institute um, for almost 10 years. And Climate Interactive was a project that started there and then became its own um, organization. Um, 
the, the only other thing I would throw in, because I think there is this professional and personal element um, to the film and to this moment that, that we all face, is another way Danella Meadows influenced my life, is that um, she had the vision of a uh, shared community farm and research institute back in the late 1990s. Um, and she inspired me and my husband, Phil, um, to be among the first families who signed up for this idea. Um, it's a place called Cobb Hill in Vermont. Uh, it's 23 families who share 280 acres, an organic farm, a forest. Um, it's where my kids grew up. Um, they've, mm -hmm. they've left home, but they spent their whole, whole childhoods here. Um, so it's, it's um, my personal part of a little experiment. And of course, there's as many ways to meet these challenges as there are people to try to meet them. But that informs, uh, I guess, the ideas I bring to this conversation just as much as the science and the computer modeling. And I wouldn't be surprised if I touch on, on both of those in the next hour. I'm, I'm certainly hoping you will. Um, well, that sounds amazing. And I, um, uh, uh, full disclosure, I follow you on Twitter and am a huge fan <laughs> of your, your, your tweets and find them hugely, um, both informing and, and also just entertaining. It's, it's kind of a mix of system science and just showing us pictures of what you're harvesting. Um, <laughs> and uh, for anyone out there who's listening, uh, Beth was asking for a, an emoji for cauliflower the other day, I think. <laughs> So, so if any of you have that, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> so, so Beth, uh, one thing I want to start with, like I said, we it's, we've distilled an awful lot in, into this performance. Of course, it's um, this is this is how uh, obviously a very different way to communicate these topics in a, a science lecture or a course. Um, and and one of the things I definitely needed to leave out was the notion of feedback loops. Um, between these interconnected systems. And uh, I know this is something that, that you speak about often and have many thoughts on. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about this notion of feedback loops and maybe even draw some connections with some of the things that are happening around us today. Yeah. Um, well, feedback loops are, are at the core of my field of systems thinking. Um, and a feedback loop is just any time when a change uh, in the world feeds back to um, to change itself. And so, in fact, in the in the film and in the clip that you showed at the beginning, Rob, you have feedback loop of exponential growth, right? Which is the thicker the piece of paper gets, the thicker it's going to get with the next fold. Um, so that's what, what in systems language we call a reinforcing feedback loop. So that's what drives that pattern of exponential growth. Um, and in the clip you say in nature, reinforcing feedback never, um, continues forever, right? And the reason it doesn't is because of another kind of feedback, which is balancing feedback. So if reinforcing feedback, it creates more and more change in the same direction, balancing feedback meets a change and brings systems back to balance. And of course, you know, we know that our bodies operate through that. That's what homeostasis is. Ecosystems um, operate that way. That's what the, the predator-prey balance is a balancing feedback loop. Um, and so, the question that the Crossroads film brings to us really is, what are the balancing feedback loops that will bring this human system into balance again? Um, and some of them we see, you know, pictures of in some of Garth's images, um, environmental destruction um, uh, to the extent that it limits economies. So when there's a natural disaster and it wipes out, uh, industrial capacity, that's a balancing feedback loop from the earth. Um, and of course that comes with incredible suffering and loss and pain, usually to the people who've done the least to create um, the, the, the impact in the first place. Uh, so you also talk about sacrifice zones in the film. Um, so those are, in some cases, those are balancing feedback loops where we see say climate disasters, um, those are, those are earth system balancing feedback loops. What we're really looking for, of course, are chosen human balancing feedback loops where we decide to limit our environmental production, our, our environmental pollution. We decide to limit um, our consumption. And, uh, you know, there's, there's amazing efforts on all of those fronts all the time, of course. One that I know a lot about is the 
UN climate change talks um, that happen every year, not this year because of COVID-19, um, you know, that gave us the Paris Agreement, which is all the countries on the face of the earth really deciding together to commit to reducing their greenhouse gas pollution. So that's a balancing feedback loop. Um, so where we end up, you know, from this moment is going to depend on the net interaction of these reinforcing loops that are causing growth and the balancing loops that can slow them down. Um, and a key part of a balancing loop, and maybe I'll leave leave my comments with, with this thought, a key part of a balancing loop is um, the sensing of a gap between a desired state and the actual state. Um, and so we desire a stable climate, we desire thriving fisheries, healthy coral reefs, and the gap is the, is the difference between the actual state and what we desire. And a feedback loop is something that closes that gap. Um, and too much of the time, that process of either uh, knowing knowing what the gap is um, or taking action to close it is, is um, often uh, actively suppressed, right? And so when we talk about climate de denialists or distortions of environmental truth um, or hiding information, um, those are all efforts um, from some part of a system to subvert a balancing feedback loop. And, um, you know, one of the interventions to help bring us to safety is to make those balancing feedback loops work better. And that's people who report, um, as Garth does, you know, here's what's happening out of your view as you pump gas or buy groceries. Here's what else is going on. That's, that's um, really a gap sensing mechanism. Um, and then all of the social movements on the planet, of course, are taking information about that gap and, and using that information to create change. And that's bringing the balancing loop to full, to full circle. So I hope that that gets at what you were, you were hoping for a little bit on feedback. Oh, completely. Because uh, I think it's nice for people to know that actually the people who study these things have a, a systemic framework to, uh, to analyze these uh, what's happening um, and talk about it and try to identify in a, in a way that you just did that is far less, let's say, political or, or um, divisive than, than our everyday cultural language talks about. If we can get rid of that language and just say, well, ultimate, basically what we have is this, these feedback loops, some of which are taking us where we don't want to go, some of which are trying to balance us. Um, and then you just talked, and we'll maybe get into this a little bit more too about this, some of the corruption of that feedback loop in our uh, information uh, information systems. And you brought in this this role, of course, though that our cultural institutions have to play, of uh, which Garth, you have played a lot. So, and maybe I'll I'll flip it to you to bring Garth into this. Yeah, yeah, I want to circle back to um, sacrifice zones again, which you you referenced in passing, Beth. But but maybe first uh, before I. I give you that hot potato, Garth, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about yourself. Also, I gave kind of your formal intro, uh, but we'd love to hear a little bit more from you. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a photojournalist and fine art photographer, and um, I almost all of my work is uh, looking at conservation issues, uh, particularly the impact of you know, massive natural resource extraction projects and the impacts that those have on indigenous people because it seems uh, invariably uh, wherever I go in, in the world, it, it seems that the, the land and the people who are, who are impacted most uh, by these massive projects tend to be indigenous people, tend to be the people that are uh, not getting any kind of the benefits from them. So they're, they're paying the price and they're not getting the benefit. Um, so that has been a, a, a large, a very, very major focus of my, of my work over the years, uh, beginning in earlier years with, uh, looking at issues around forests and the last four, uh, last few years, much more focused on climate change and fossil fuel resource extraction and issues around energy. Well, so it came up a moment ago about, you know, the role of documentation and all of this. Um, and so, 
you know, to go to the, really to the personal, um, we've talked about this notion of sacrifice zones already a little bit in passing. And um, this is certainly something that, that Rob and the members of the quartet have thought about a lot, talked about a lot, read about a lot. Uh, but you have spent a lot of time with your boots on the ground, so to speak. You've spent a lot of time with these people. You mentioned the indigenous peoples who are usually uh, disproportionately affected by this. And so if you would maybe share with us a little bit how that has shaped your work going forward, how it's impacted you, um, you know, being able to actually interact with these folks year after year. Yeah, I mean, you know, you realize that, you know, behind the sort of the, the large scale landscape images of the devastation, there are all these incredibly painful human stories. Um, you know, whether that's in the Chemical Valley, which is in uh, southwestern Ontario near Sarnia, where you have, uh, I believe it is 60 or 70 large refineries and petrochemical plants within about a five by 15 mile corridor surrounding a First Nations reserve of Anjemong. Um, this is an area that National Geographic called the most polluted place in North America with astronomical rates of cancer and signs of significant endocrine disruption amongst the population. Um, to obviously the the Alberta tar sands where I spent a lot of a lot of time uh, as also figured very very prominently in my work um, and people there the land and the water is being polluted they can no longer eat the same the, the fish that they used to be able to um, you know rare forms of cancer are are skyrocketing in other parts of uh, of northern Canada um, in in my TED talk one of the one of the um, examples I give is uh, a First Nations person lending me a boat to go down the uh, the Peace River into Wood Buffalo National Park, and uh, telling me, you know, not to not to eat the fish from there. And yet, on his front porch, seeing five or six large fish that he obviously had to feed his family, and particularly in in many of these remote communities, food is extraordinarily expensive. It all has to be flown in. Um, the economies are, are, you know, doing very, very poorly, very high rates of, of unemployment. And, you know, you think of the, you know, we talk a lot about the ecological costs, but the social costs, the social costs of creating a situation where in one of the richest countries in the world, um, you know, the people who, who this is all of their land, we're just, uh, we're tourists really compared to uh, populations that have been here five to 10,000 years. And, they're being forced into a, into a situation where either their families go hungry or they're forced to feed them poisonous, uh, potentially carcinogenic foods that we would never, that they would never even uh, consider, you know, would caution us against eating. And I think as a parent, um, to be put in that kind of a uh, that kind of a place is just phenomenally painful. And that this happens in countries like Canada and the United States and others, which are extremely wealthy, um, is just a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a real, it's almost like a, a, a crime against humanity. Well, it is a crime against humanity. Um, so obviously that, you know, that really affects my, my work very, very greatly. Um, oftentimes things are twisted by the proponents of some of these major projects. Oftentimes they will uh, boast in the fact that First Nations communities have signed on to co-management agreements, and I've certainly talked um, with individuals from those communities, and you know they have basically said that they have a hard choice to make. They have maybe you know if a new pipeline or a, a new massive mine or some other kind of project is going into their onto their their um, treaty lands. Um, they have one chance to to sign on, sort of hold their nose and and you know uh, see the destruction of their traditional lands. But in the off in the in part of that bargain, perhaps they have a chance to give their their children the same kinds of uh, access to education, to even clean water, which is many many First Nations reserves in Canada do not even have access to clean drinking water to equal access to education and healthcare, to employment opportunities, all of these things that uh, in the rest of the country, we just take absolutely for granted. So I think, you know, until 
across the uh, across the country and across indigenous communities only when they have that kind of free access can can one really say that they signed on to some of these projects with free and informed consent and of course uh, many within these communities do not wish to sign on to these projects for all of the uh, the social and ecological costs related and so you have a major division between these communities and and it is the strength of that community that has really um, allowed those communities to survive so much of the hardship which has been imposed upon them by our you know colonial life lifestyle and and political system um so garth i wonder what i want to do now is maybe just uh, i'll show i want to show some of the images that that appear in in the crossroads performance uh from yours we use quite a number of your images here's and i think i want to draw some contrast so this slide shows some of the images that we use that are just the natural world the natural beauty um and uh uh maybe you can briefly tell us about where these are uh, sure. Um, well, the, the upper left image is uh, actually of um, Chesapeake Bay, and uh, this is showing the, the uh, rising, um, rising tides there, which is engulfing wetlands and islands and even some existing communities. Um, the next image going clockwise is of the uh, boreal forest. In, uh, that's in northern Saskatchewan. And um, uh, the boreal forest uh, is the most effective terrestrial uh, carbon sink on the planet, and Canada's boreal forests actually uh, um, sequester about twice as uh, amount of carbon per acre or hectare as uh, tropical rainforests do. Beside that, we have an image of where the uh, boreal meets the coastal mountains, and we then descend into the other side into the Great Bear Rainforest on the west coast of, uh, of Canada. Um, this is an area where a uh, uh, a pipeline for tar sands crude was proposed to go uh, through the boreal and into the Great Bear Rainforest where it would cause many, many problems and have to go through a jigsaw puzzle of fjords and some of the most difficult to navigate waters on the planet. Um, the next image is a, is a um, leaf uh, decaying in, uh, in Borneo. Um, this is actually an area too where I, I traveled for um, three days, I guess, up the Mahakam River to uh, uh, to uh, live with some Dayak people who two generations ago were still uh, practicing uh, traditional, traditional, very traditional Dayak culture, actually still are, um, and uh, where a number of uh, mines have been imposed upon the populations there. Uh, in one particular situation, one of the villages had refused the mine, and then the, this was under the Saharto rule. The military had come in and basically started firing machine guns all over the place until everybody just fled for their lives. Um, and the final image is uh, a, an aerial over a uh, wetland, actually very, very near the uh, Alberta tar sands or, um, or uh, oil sands, as they're sometimes referred to. And then uh, we have another series. So those were the natural world as it basically is uh, without humans. And we've got this collection of photographs and I'll just, uh, I know there are some people who will be listening to this who don't have the video. So uh, uh, Garth, maybe you'll describe these images um, as well. Yeah, again, um, going from the um, top left uh, corner uh, is a, a tar mine in uh, in the Alberta tar sands, and uh, if you're looking at that, you would actually see a tiny little speck, which is about a uh, uh, is a truck, which is about the same size as a two-story, three thousand square foot home. Uh, vast area of devastation. Uh, beside that, uh, similar similar sort of uh, image, uh, tar mine at at night. Again, in the far far distance, you can see the largest uh, sulfur. Um, uh, sulfur heaps uh, on the planet. That's a byproduct of the refining process. Beside that, you have a um, upgrader or refinery in the in the tar sands, um, showing some of the uh, huge amount of, of uh, effluent. I mean, obviously, what you're seeing here is steam, but in that steam are some of the most uh, carcinogenic compounds found on the planet. Uh, those are going into the air and also into the water, uh, which is the um, Next, next two images, as you sort of go along the counterclockwise circle, these are the 
largest toxic impoundments on the planet can be seen from outer space. The largest of these are uh, about two thirds of the entire island of Manhattan. And there's about um, uh, 40 of these now existing on either side of the Athabasca River. And uh, their toxins are, are draining into the Athabasca River and into the indigenous populations downstream. And a very large amount of toxins are also now being uh, found through recent studies are, are, are occurring in the spring runoff and melt. And what this indicating is that many of these toxins are also making their way into the atmosphere and then descending in the form of uh, precipitation. So, so I think we'll, uh, we'll come back to, uh, so thank you, Garth. Uh, I mean, one of the things that of course, Ann and I've talked about and we, and you, you said you get oh. comments is that some of these, Images are themselves kind of beautiful, not just kind of. They're when you when you first look at them, they're quite striking, as almost beautiful until you understand what it is you're you're looking at. Yeah, maybe we could could we go back to the last slide and perhaps there's the the uh, central yeah. lower image there with the um, the sky reflected in the tailings ponds with the um, the big white puffy clouds. I actually sell this as a fine art print and I've named it. I've I've looked at clouds from both sides now and honor of uh, Joni Mitchell. <laughs> um, <laughs> in any event, sometimes people will say, uh, I've had actually other photojournalists um, say that I'm, I'm making these scenes look, look too beautiful, that I'm sort of glamorizing this devastation, which is certainly the farthest thing from my intention when I photograph, particularly from the air. It's, it's really a very, very uh, intuitive kind of, of process. But I actually think that those, those images, for instance, that image there where you can see the, the clouds and the sky reflected in the, the toxins, um, it really kind of expresses, I think, the cognitive dissonance of our society in that, you know, as much as we think it's, it's horrible, um, all these impacts, the social impacts, the environmental impacts as a result of, of our addiction to fossil fuels and, 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 and the ensuing climate change and global warming, at the same time, we all enjoy their benefits. Uh, and we find it very, very difficult to kind of uh, tear ourselves away from those benefits. Now, some of that is a result of just the you know, institutionalized system and infrastructure that we live in that that make it very difficult but even on a you know on a, on a purely personal level every day to day i think we're faced with this dilemma between the values of how much we know is wrong with this in our relationship uh with those and and all the luxuries and the conveniences that they've provided and um you know i also think that you know Photography and an image of a of of a disturbing thing, which has some aesthetic beauty, is a is a, a sort of a non-confrontational way, that non-polarizing way. We can pull people into that conversation. They can look at those images, they can enjoy them, and then they can understand what they're what they're looking at and come to their own conclusions about some of these. And I just think that that you know, invariably, I find the conclusions that we come to from you know not under pressure observing whether it's observing the data or observing the visual data or listening to the music that the responses and the feelings and the conclusions that we come from doing that are so much stronger than anything I or anyone else can sort of tell tell someone so I, I think that's one of the ways that art can really inform these conversations well thank you Garth. So I guess we'll just, uh, I mean, so eloquently stated, and you've clearly done this many times. I mean, uh, you, you've had many, many conversations, I know, with people. Um, and Beth, you as well, in talking about these things um, from this more maybe clinical standpoint of system science. So Beth, I'm wondering just as you watched the film and as you've listened to Garth, um, I mean, what what is the role really of culture in in sort of in closing that gap and taking us from the state we're in to the state we want to be? Yeah, yeah. You know what this reminds me of is, um, you know, I've been teaching people about the Earth system and climate change for a long time. I started in the late '90s, going around to like church basements and auditoriums with a slideshow about climate change and 
this was a time when it, you know, was much less in the popular consciousness. And I made people cry, like people left the room, they couldn't, they couldn't handle, you know, what the scientific kind of evidence that was coming out. And um, that was, of course, the opposite impact of what I wanted to have. I was trying to mobilize people to take action. And I seemed to be shutting them down and paralyzing them. And um, so I actually came to a point where I was like, no more, I'm not going to give this presentation until I learn a different way of engaging. And I, I put it on the shelf for a while. Um, one thing I did is I went and studied with Joanna and Fran Macy. Um, their work, is, it's often called the work that reconnects. And it is based on the the premise that um, our fear and grief and anger about the state of the world is so strong. Um, and, and our, at least American culture, you know, labels those all as negative emotions um, and teaches us to suppress them, to not express them. And what Joanna Macy's work is all about is, is actually those emotions have intelligence for us, right? We're organisms on a planet in crisis. We should be afraid. We should be rageful. Um, we should be paying attention. Fear tells, tells us to wake up and pay attention. Anger tells us there's something precious we need to defend. Um, and so that initial work with Joanna really has become a, a strand of my work ever since is to try to understand um, how to create the experiences where people can process those emotions and then, of course, convert them to action. Because the, the problem is that in the weight of those emotions, um, uh, especially without a way to understand them and without the solidarity of others, it's really easy to shut down. Um, and so to circle to your question, Rob, I think part of the role of culture and the humanities is they provide us um, ways to process this information. And, and I know watching the film, um, I was so grateful for each interlude and of the string quartet, um, which allowed, I think, the time and space for me to, to like, absorb more than intellectually whatever it was that, that had just been presented. Um, and I think Garth's images do the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and also the images, of course, that remind us of how beautiful this planet is. And as far as we know, you know, the only place in the universe like this. Um, so we talk in, in my field sometimes about the creative tension um, between what the current reality is and what is possible still. Um, and that we think that part of the um, skill of effective action in this time is to, is to put ourselves in that creative tension. You know, you can avoid the tension if you don't face how bad it is. Um, you can also avoid the tension if you don't allow yourself to believe that something better is possible. But if you can simultaneously face the truth and see, um, you know, what the film turns to toward the end of um, a transformed society, uh, you, you know, it's painful to live in that gap, but that's also where the action is and the potential for change is. Well, Beth, you're making me think about something that I was really struck by in reading a little bit about your work, which is this notion of um, what you call multi-solving, um, which I found really powerful. And I wonder if you would just speak a little bit about that and how it sort of relates back to what you were just saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about multi-solving. Um, it's a word that I invented, but of course, it's it expresses an idea that all human beings do all the time. Um, you know, I think of my grandmother who, who uh, faced great poverty and the depression in the United States, um, you know, who could make anything she did serve many purposes at the same time. That, that's what multi-solving is. It's the idea that when we face converging crises, we actually, if we're, if we're skillful at it, can invest our time and our money and our intention in these actions that, that solve multiple problems at the same time. Um, and I find examples are the best way to convey it. So, um, you know, a very simple example is imagine replacing a coal-fired power plant um, near, a, near a city uh, with green energy like wind and solar. So for the long term, of course, you're reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So you're improving um, the climate situation. But in the short term, you're reducing air pollution from the coal-fired power plant. 
Um, and so the cases of childhood asthma in that neighborhood near the, the power plant are gonna go down. Um, the cardiovascular um, health of the people in the community, the number of premature births, all of these things are actually linked very strongly to air pollution and they'll get better right away while the climate will be protected you know, decades from now. Uh, and, and in fact, this health and climate um, intersection is so strong. In 2018, the World Health Organization came out with a report that said, the costs of being on track to the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement would be completely offset by the savings to health systems around the world. Um, very few people really, you know, uh, Rob, I think of uh, such an the important theme in the in the film is like, it's time to believe what we know. So, so there's another example. Um, there is amazing possibility that we know that we don't actually believe, right? We don't actually believe that we could make a better world at an affordable price. Um, but everything that we know about the health and climate intersection says that's really true. And now the, of course the challenge is, is getting us all to um, really imagine how that works. And kind of, I think I always feel like this is what one of the things that culture does for us is um, is allow us to to try on a whole different world for a while, like a film or a, a book, and wear it around. And you you know we insert ourselves as we're watching it and we're reading, it, and maybe it's a world in which we don't have all of these problems, and we get to actually maybe imagine, gee, maybe it is possible to do that. Maybe it is possible to live all these things that we normally think of as, oh, there's no way we'll get rid of fossil fuels, or there's no way that you could convince, you know, the world to eat less meat or at least industrialized agriculture in this way. But then if you're just able to try it around, try it on and wear it around for a while, it, I, I feel like it helps make it more real for us. Um, so that's well, another power I, I find in that. You know, and of course one, you know, countries are starting to make that change. While we in North America sort of debate these things, I know, Rob, that you had a statistic about, I think, the amount of uh, solar power and the percentage of, of energy that Germany is is deriving from that now, some sort of statistic like that I know in the past that I was very impressed by. Um, and, and, you know, Beth, what you were talking about, you know, air quality issues, and I forget the statistic, but, you know, the number of people that have died as a result of, of toxic air pollution, of which so much is fossil fuels, is absolutely astronomical. I mean, it's, it's comparable to, you know, I, I believe it is more than we're losing from all other kinds of, of diseases. And, you know, one of the things that sort of made, gave me some, some hope was during the height of pan, the pandemic, I mean, I guess we're back in the new height again, but um, during the first wave, um, you start to hear about uh, blue sky over Beijing and dolphins coming into the Venice canals and, and how quickly the planet uh, this is, uh, can heal itself. And that's not sort of a recipe for putting this off more because obviously certain things come back uh, very quickly and other things like, like the, the climate are going to take much, much longer to come back. But the point is that well, when we stop making everything worse, uh, the planet has this incredible ability to to heal itself if we just give it half a chance. And of course, you know, when the planet heals itself, um, our communities and our lives and our health also improves and gets healed. I have often found myself wondering, you know, is are we going to learn any kind of long term lessons from this? You know, a lot, exactly along the lines of what you're describing, Garth, that I mean, speaking in a tiny example of just the way that life has changed, uh, for example, for, for me in my role as a teacher at a university, uh, even as a music teacher for whom, you know, being in the same room together, being live together to experience performances together is so vital. And yet there's been a lot that we were able to change, a lot of ways in which we could be flexible in order to kind of live by these new rules. And I would just be curious, really for any of the three of you. Um, but Beth, maybe to start with you, do, do you see this as potentially being an opportunity and are you seeing signs that people might be taking these opportunities going forward? Yeah, um, there's enormous opportunity 
And I think we're only taking a tiny, tiny fraction of it, actually. Um, one of the uh, biggest opportunities is the trillions of dollars. It's estimated about $12 trillion governments around the world have pledged for economic recovery in response to the pandemic. Um, there was just research published in Science, the journal, um, which said that about for about 10% of that $12 trillion, the world could be for the next four or five years on the path to meet the Paris Agreement goals. And just to be clear, we're not on that path. Um, and also most likely that 12 trillion is not being invested um, even, even that 10% in the way that we need. But uh, it gives you a sense of, of actually how achievable that is, right? Um, uh, and although it's a tiny percent of how that stimulus is being spent so far, um, my colleagues and I at Climate Interactive are really carefully tracking uh, a small subset. Uh, we, we are looking at the projects that, that um, we say are green, resilient, and equitable. Um, so they lock in low carbon economies, they uh, help people respond to climate impacts, and they do it in a way where the benefits and the burdens are equitably shared. And while it's a tiny percentage overall, each of those bright spots is an example really of what's possible. Um, and so those are things like um, in Nigeria, a program um, to provide solar panels to villages that may not have um, access to the electricity grid. So they're replacing diesel and kerosene. Um, kids have light to study by, you know, for school at night, the air pollution is reduced. That would, that's, uh, you know, one example. Um, in the UK, there's a huge investment in um, the infrastructure for cycling. We see this in many cities around the world. Um, it's both to help essential workers get around during the pandemic, but those, of course, will be investments that will, that will remain afterwards. Um, in the UK, we understand that you can do things like bring in your old bike from the shed and get a free tune-up so that you can start commuting to work on your bicycle, and that's part of their COVID-19 um, recovery. Uh, cities in the U.S. Are, are somewhat of a bright spot for this. Here in Vermont, the municipal electric utility in Burlington um, has a green stimulus program that includes low-income home weatherization and electric car infrastructure. So imagine that scaled up to $12 trillion. Like That would transform the world in the direction that we need to go. Is tailor-made for multi-solving. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, when you face so many crises at the same time, um, you can't afford to tackle them individually, right? It's too expensive monetarily. Um, and politically, your coalition for each priority is too weak, right? You know, you have the health interests and the climate interests. In all of these types of projects, those intersect. But um, by and large, um, you know, these are decisions that are made by different ministries or different jurisdictions that are funded by different grant makers. People generally don't, even if they see the potential for overlap, um, they don't have the flexibility in their jobs or their funding streams to work together in this way. Um, so we think one of the biggest investments is upfront to support the kind of integration and relationship building that allows people to actually take advantage of these opportunities. So they're not just theoretical, but they actually can come into being. Um, I wonder, so this is the real trip, right? I mean, this is, uh, Beth, when you were talking about your early days of giving talks uh, and, and having people just overcome with um, despair, essentially, I, I certainly resonated with that. I, uh, your your path sounds a lot like mine in my early days of doing this, which was a little bit, I didn't start doing this until 2007. But um, we have this state that we're in and we have the state that we, we want to be in. And, and by and large, we, we, we know what it looks like. Uh, you know, what a sustainable and a just and a vibrant world. We, we kind of know the bones of that, I think. Um, and and feel free to, don't let me put words in your mouth, but I think we know the basics of how to, how to have an energy system and a food system and an economic system that accomplishes those things. And what we don't seem to be able to know how to do is to get ourselves to do it. And um, Beth and Garth, I've heard you both talk about this notion of a, of a worldview and a perspective and changing that perspective. So one thing we have to do, of course, is change the systems. But those systems emerge from 
who we are and who what we choose to value. Um, and so I'm wondering that notion of what do either of you have to say about getting us to move forward? Uh, how do we go, you know, I'm, I'm stumbling because I don't want to put it on you. If you knew the answer exactly, of course, we'd all be through this. But the question, of course, is how do we change our worldviews? How do we get these new systems to emerge? And I'm wondering where you are, where you both are, you're thinking of that. Well, Garth. I, I, I think, you know, and I mentioned this a little bit in that, that triptych image we might look at a little bit later, but I think that so much of our infrastructure that keeps us trapped in this kind of endless cycle of, of consumption of fossil fuels and then destroying more of the natural environment and, and compromising our health. That, that infrastructure was, you know, much of that was, was created by the opportunities made possible only through cheap, abundant fossil fuel energy. Now, you know, that that cheap, abundant fossil fuel energy is kind of coming to its end. And we're start, starting to realize, especially uh, as the commodity itself becomes more expensive and as we start to factor in uh, the ecological, the social, the health costs, um, we realize that cheap energy is not very cheap at all, um, particularly when we also factor in the fact that the fossil fuel energy and these corporations, the wealthiest corporations that have, you know, ever existed on the planet are receiving 10 times the kind of subsidies that the um that alternative e energy that is the way to the future are are receiving you know the only reason we can afford to fill up our our, our vehicles and it not cost an astronomical amount is because it's so heavily subsidized you know in, in europe where i gather there's less subsidization and there's much much higher gas there's also um you know many many fewer people um driving driving cars per capita i suspect and much greater use of alternative transportation so you know we we need that I think that massive kind of systemic infrastructure change. And I think that, you know, when people have the opportunities to make those kinds of choices and, and, and they're viable for what they need to do to live and work and get their families from A to B and uh, earn a living that, that people will, will, um, will choose them. But such massive energy has been put towards preventing us from even being able to make, to have those kinds of choices. Thanks, um, Garth. I have a couple yeah. of thoughts on that too. Um, I agree with a lot that you just said, Garth, for sure. I, I have two answers, I guess, to your question, Rob. One, um, this also was a long time ago, probably 2005 or so. I um, was teaching in a leadership fellows program for global sustainability leaders. And I was teaching about the need for a paradigm shift is, was the language that I was using. And um, one of the fellows in this program was a really um, inspiring woman who ran a feminist radio station um, uh, in Nicaragua. She had been part of the Sandinista movement and she kind of raised her hand when I started talking about paradigms and she was like, it's not so much that we need a paradigm shift is that we need to turn to the paradigms that have always been here and that, you know, more than half of the world's people still hold. Um, and mm -hmm. I think she probably would have um, maybe labeled that as an indigenous paradigm. Um, and so I think one of the things that, uh, you know, white Westerners like me are becoming more and more aware of is that uh, indigenous epistemologies and ways of knowing um, economies and, and food production systems that can last for 30 or 40,000 years um, haven't gone away. Those cultural and knowledge traditions are, are being held um, by, by people around the world. So, so that's one of my answers to how do we have a worldview change? Part of it is we change who we pay attention to and, mm -hmm. and who we support. Um, the second one is a little bit more, you know, back to this issue of feedback loops. Um, there are two reinforcing feedback loops. So remember, those are the ones where change feeds upon itself and gets bigger and bigger. It's very small until it's not, as you said, Rob. Um, in the 
there's a there's a book um, by Thomas Kuhn called The Theory of Scientific Revolutions. And he yeah. looked at how paradigms in science change, but I think we can apply it to worldviews or paradigms in society. And um, he found these two reinforcing feedback loops that tear down a paradigm that's not serving and build up one that is. So the tearing down loop is that uh, based on something he called anomalies. So these are the things that are happening that aren't explained by the paradigm that exists, the dominant one. And so, you know, yeah. each of Garth's pictures of child labor and pits of toxic chemicals is an anomaly, right? If, if this Western colonial worldview were working, we would be healthy and happy and we wouldn't be destroying our planet. Um, and what, what Kuhn found was that um, when a paradigm is strong, people actually reject the evidence of anomalies more than they reject the paradigm. And that's probably part of what's allowed us to get so deeply into this uh, is that we believe we're living in the best possible way and we can't even see the, re the ways that we're not. Um, but eventually the anomalies accumulate to such a degree because the worldview is out of step with the world. It's just going to keep making anomalies worse and worse and worse. Uh, more and more people face them and they lose confidence in the worldview. And the thing he found was that uh, as more people have less confidence, more anomalies become apparent. And so you can see how that gains momentum, right? That that something that looks incredibly strong um, is actually uh, about to falter under the weight of the anomalies. And so, you know, think about the great transitions like the falling of the Berlin Wall, where no one could predict exactly when it happened and it seemed to happen just out of nowhere, right? That's kind of the kind of thing that's driven by this feedback loop. Um, and the second feedback loop is what brings a new worldview into prominence. And it too has this reinforcing feedback dynamic. Um, so in that one, people experiment with new worldviews and they solve problems. Um, and the solving of the problems builds confidence in the new worldview, which leads to even more people experimenting, solving even more problems, building even more confidence. Um, and so that's the flowering of experiments on earth right now. It's ecological food production, it's permaculture, it's worker-owned cooperatives, it's social movements, it's certain new technologies, um, it's, it's new ways of making decisions and governance. Um, and, and those things too will have that pattern of, uh, it looks like nothing is changing until suddenly it bursts into um, fullness, right? That's what exponential growth does. And so, even in these dark times when things seem really scary, those two feedback loops um, should remind us to just keep going and just keep plugging along because we're part of this unseen process of change feeding upon itself that can create transformation, um, which seems pretty clearly to me what, what we're after. Slow incremental change isn't gonna cut it anymore. We're looking for transformation. Wow, that's, I mean, that point is so perfectly said, you know, the the amplifying feedbacks can can also take us to good change as, as well as to destructive, <laughs> to, to destructive change. Man, I, and I don't know about you, I'm willing to keep going for another hour or so. I know, I wish we could. There's so much to talk about. This has been fascinating. Good. Yeah, thank um, you both. Oh, thank you. Wonderful to be a part of it. Thank you so both, yes for joining us. And uh, I'll just give a plug one more time. Garth Lenz, uh, you can find him on uh, uh, online in many places. Google the name, you'll find his website, his TED Talks. The same with uh, with Dr. Elizabeth Sawin. Um, I've personally found you both tremendous resources uh, for going forward with my own work. Uh, and so thanks again for joining us. And Anne, I guess we have a few more people to thank. We do indeed. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. So for the uh, 2020 and 2021 Nova season sponsors, we would not be able to present this without them. We thank the Utah legislature and the Utah Division of Arts and Museums, the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation, the Salt Lake County Zoo Arts and Parks, the George S. and Dolores Dory Eccles Foundation, Isotope, the Salt Lake City Arts Council, the Cultural Vision Fund, Dominion Energy, Rocky Mountain Power Foundation, 
the Alice M. Ditson Fund of Columbia University, and the Erin Copeland Fund for Music. Thank you to all those organizations. And again, thank you, Beth and Garth, for the inspiration today. This has been the Nova Podcast. Our hosts were Rob Davies and Anne Francis Bayliss. Our guests were Elizabeth Sawin and Garth Lenz. This episode was produced by Chris Myers. Next time, we wrap up the Crossroads series by talking with two artists who use their work to explore the idea of a sustainable world. Composer Gabriella Lena Frank and playwright Chantal Bilodeau join us on our next episode. The Nova Podcast is funded by listeners like you. You can donate to support Nova's programming at novaslc.org. Don't forget to subscribe and share the Nova Podcast with your friends. We'll see you next time.